testing one, two, three, hello, 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 welcome to Comic Book Herald Live. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. We're starting early today. Starting a little bit early today because I do not want to wait. I do not have the patience to wait as we dive in to Immortal X-Men number 10. Technically, some other comics came out today, but let's be real. Let's be real. We're talking about Immortal X-Men number 10. Huge spoilers in this issue. Incredibly exciting spoilers. If you have not read Immortal X-Men number 10, uh, definitely have to warn you that you will want to have done that <laughs> before we proceed. Okay, before we proceed. Now, because I am starting super early, I will try to withhold the spoiler for as long as I can. But it's not going to be long. It's not going to be long. <laughs> okay? So if you're here, spoilers will follow as they do every week here on Comic Book Live where we talk about this week's comic books and whatever else is going on and exciting in the world of pop culture. Again, I'm Dave Founder and Editor-in-Chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You can find reading orders and guides to all the comics coming out over on Comic Book Herald, the world's most helpful comic book website. I'm seeing some folks pop in here live Early thanks to those of you joining. Get in your questions, get in your thoughts here in the chat. All I ask, of course, is that you be respectful to those around you. I will answer as many questions as I can. Uh, Super Chat, as always, is open and available. If you feel like supporting CBH, that is greatly appreciated. You can always also do that over at patreon.com slash comic book herald. Much, much appreciated, those of you that are already doing that. Thanks so much. Okay, let's do this, puppy. Let's do this, puppy. Like I said, spoilers will follow if you haven't read it. Let's do it. Uh, I want to start here. I want to start here. Immortal X-Men number 10 came out today. It is the 10th issue in Karen Gillan's run with primarily Lucas Wernick on art here on Immortal X-Men. Um, throughout this entire run, I've been saying this is 1A to 1B with Al Ewing's X-Men Red, right? It's been dueling aces. It's been, I saw it described as a rat battle earlier, right? You just, you have two leads. You have a Zach Levine, you have a DeMar DeRozan. Bad example, but I'm a huge Bulls fan. <laughs> Okay, um, you have two leads, and both of them are doing their thing, and it's hard to say like which is better. You, at this point, it's like who cares, right? You have two leads; they're both great. But Immortal X Men can be so flipping good. The structuralist approach that Gillen took to this book to say, "All right, we've got a Quiet Council. There are twelve to thirteen to fourteen of them. Let's do a character study each issue." and simultaneously have this overarching narrative of Mr. Sinister's grand scheme coming to fruition, building to a big X-Men crossover, Sins of Sinister, which starts uh, two weeks from now. Or is it next week? Now, now I'm mixed up, because the, the release order is weird now, because it's Sins of Sinister comes out, and then the next issue of Legion of X comes out, but not the Sins of Sinister crossover. Like, there's still a Legion of X issue to come, and then we get into... I think, all the crossovers and such. Um, but regardless, right? It's a build to that moment. But in doing these character studies, this formalistic approach of, yeah, each issue is one member of the Quiet Councils, Gillen has, I think, over the course of this, like, now one-year run, I mean, how many best character studies has this writer dropped in this in this series alone, right? I think X, Immortal X-Men number three is the best Destiny character study, arguably, you're right. You could put the Claremont sort of visions issue in there. It's in the mix, you know, 
But it, for me, probably, I think that was probably the best Destiny character study. Sebastian Shaw, for sure. <laughs> the best Sebastian Shaw character study. And now, the hardest degree of difficulty of the bunch, Professor Charles Xavier. I mean, this is a character with 60-plus years of history. Hard to come in and say, I'm going to write the best single-issue character study of Charles Xavier. The guy's had some, some at-bats, right? We've seen Charlie X doing some things. And I just, this issue was absolutely, absolutely on another level. I mean, we're going to talk about this, but just like, this is a, a genuinely legendary run that Kieran Gillen is on right now. Like, this is a hot streak that started early 2021. With, so, like, Gillen comes in and, and is known as a Marvel Universe writer from, I don't know, what, 2008, let's say, until about 2014, 15. Goes off and primarily does creator-owned works while also simultaneously contributing a ton to the Star Wars side of things. You know, a iconic Darth Vader run and then writing the actual Star Wars series itself. So never really left Marvel, you know, as a, a publishing entity, certainly, and in licensed comics and that sort of thing. A very busy, busy comics writer, of course, right? But not playing in the Marvel Universe sandbox. Takes a handful of years off, comes back, and has just been on fire. Absolutely on fire. I compared it to Jordan's 1991 season. 31.5 points per game. That's what Gillen's doing right now. And I feel like those dots did not connect fully for me until today. I mean, we got Eternals, which is just, not only is it the best Eternals work, but it's just like, it's so franchise-saving in so many ways. You got Judgment Day, which is a really fascinating, really solid event, and Immortal X-Men, which is this stinking good which is this stinking good, right? And it's going to go into Sins of Sinister and and who knows what else. From there, we know Immortal X-Men is coming back. Now, those of you who listened to the live interview I did with Kieran Gillen here on the Comic Herald YouTube channel, you already knew Immortal X-Men was coming back after Sins of Sinister because he clarified that after I asked. Uh, there was a, a snafu <laughs> over at CBR.com this week. They announced that this was the end Immortal X-Men, uh, at least on social, it is not, of course. It is not that. It's coming back, right? There's going to be more Gillen staying around if, if, for at least a little bit to wrap that series. Um, but just like, man, what a run. What a flipping run. They came back, took some years away from the Marvel Universe, and then just, you know, knocked out some glorious career-owned works, right? Wick Div is fantastic. Die is in there, um, you know, overlapping, but uh, once in future of course, handful of other things, and just like, like, improved, improved the craft, got better and better, and it's not like there was, you know, it's not like Gillen was a slouch <laughs> in the previous incarnation, right? Young Avengers with, with Jamie McKelvey is many folks' favorite Young Avengers run. Um, you had, of course, Journey to Mystery with Kid Loki and all that is a really, really good run, um, as well as some others. So, uh, anyway, just have to take a moment to, to appreciate and celebrate that, because right now, I mean, Al Ewing is doing amazing Marvel Universe work. And, of course, we're, we're lucky to have Ewing doing X-Men Red within the X-Men Universe. It's another thing where I don't even want to come out and say, like, oh, power rankings, who's one, who's two here. Um, but the run Gillen is on, the consistency of it, because he's also, he's also not picking up a million books, right? Like, Ewing will just be like... You know, like, hey, do you want to do a weird Wasp miniseries, Al? <laughs> like, all right, sure. <laughs> like, well, just write anything. 
seemingly, um, and put a super unique spin on the majority of it. But there's also some stuff in there that's just like, why are we doing this? What's this about? Uh, Gillen's consistency, just like everything that's coming out, is just flipping incredible. So enough fawning over, over the creator. But, I mean, what a run. What a run, and it's not done yet. And it's not done yet. Uh, okay. Again, we're still early here. I, I want to give folks time, but I mean, there's no way to do it. There's no proper way to do this without talking spoilers. So if you're here, if you're listening, thanks so much for joining. Again, get at as many questions as you can. And, uh, and you know, I will answer as many as that I am able to in this time. But we got to we gotta do spoilers, right? We got to do spoilers, baby. Um, okay. Immortal X-Men number 10. Let's do this puppy. Huge, huge reveal in today's comics. Um, I, if you read it, you know. Uh, and if you didn't, go read it. Go read it. You got to check it out. Just huge revelation. And the craziest thing about the revelation in Immortal X-Men number 10 is it's going to get a ton of attention, but like it was already a classic before that drop, right? Before the reveal dropped, it was already a classic because of how well it portrayed Professor Charles Xavier. You know, like I was saying with the best character studies here, right at the opening, like right at the flipping opening, it was already a glorious Professor X revelation. And the reason it was that, I think so much for me, at least as a reader, was it was an honest Professor X. So rarely do we see what's Charles really thinking, right? For the ultimate mind reader, of course, the hardest thing is to actually get in Charlie's head. What's he actually thinking? What are the actual plans? We know he's a bit nefarious. We know the things he's done. And yet there's often this attempted image as the savior of Krakoa, as the leader of mutants, as, as what, right? As the teacher, as the mentor he views himself as. Um, Professor Charlie can be a monster. And here he gets to admit it. He gets to admit it freely, right? He gets to be honest. Such a revelation. So incredibly rewarding and engaging to be like, oh, okay, cut through the BS for a minute. What do you really think? What do you really think about all this? Why are you actually forming the X-Men? Why is Angel actually on the original five? Because he's wealthy as hell. Because he's got a ton of money, right? You know, and, and I one thing that definitely we have, I have said, and I think a lot of you in the chat have said consistently, is like for an era that began with the House of X, you know, the house of Professor X, right? And was so focused on this character as the savior alongside Moira Magneto, of course, of, of mutant kind. <sighs> there hasn't been a lot of good Charles Xavier content outside of those big events, right? Outside of the Hoxpox, outside of Inferno, um, weirdly outside of X-Men Unlimited, the Infinity comic, <laughs> where he goes to the Age of Apocalypse, which we talked about last week and came on very recently. There has not been a heck of a lot of Professor X content. And this issue, like, resolves that in one flippin' issue. In one flippin' issue. It's like, oh, okay, you want that? Here it is. And it showcases, like, hey, remember when Professor X was powerful and, and a master strategist and the flippin' schemer of this whole endeavor, this whole enterprise, you know? Remember that person, that character? Because Charlie's been on his heels, for years now in the comics. You know, Charlie's been on his heels, right? Charlie's been in a corner. And nobody puts Charlie in a corner. You know, nobody. 
So they really got the opportunity here, or they being, you know, Kieran and, and Lucas Wernick, to be like, no, Professor X is insanely powerful. Some of the ways that they reveal this, aside from just Charlie saying, hey, I'm really powerful, look at me, um, a secret, okay? There were multiple revelations, but the secret that is revealed earlier in the comic is that uh, Professor X put a psychic block in the, the world leaders around the globe to prevent nuclear war, to prevent nuclear disaster. You know, he, he starts talking about, like, if I wanted to, I could put, you know, a psychic whatever trigger in everyone's brain that would wipe out literally all of humanity. If I, he was like, if I was Magneto and I had his anger and his rage, I could have done that. I could have just wiped out all of humanity, like, no problem. And that's, I'm, I'm going to take off the diamond here real quick. <laughs> it's a little sticky. <laughs> if you join late, you don't get to see the diamond. Um, he's like, I could have done that. But then he's like, you know what I actually did though? And because he's, listen, Charlie, always, 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 what's he always saying? Right? Oh, I would, I would never mess with anybody's mind. I would never mess with anybody's mind. You know, without their consent? Mm -mm, not for me. Right? And of course, what did he do? He put psychic blocks on all the world leaders that if they go to push the nuclear button, you know, if they say, yeah, give me the suitcase, they can't do it. They can't do it. He's like, why would I allow that? And I, I kind of love that. <laughs> First off, kind of wish we had it. Second off, like, that makes sense for this character. Why would you allow these things out of your control, right? For Professor X, who was trying to control so much of mutant destiny, especially knowing what he knows from Moira. Remember, this is not your father's Charles Xavier, okay? Um, this is a Charlie who was broken by Moira's revelations. This is a different modern version of this character. And here we get to see, what does that actually mean? How does that actually manifest, right? Like, like yes, he's he's not just like, oh, the dream, you know, he, he, we, have to, we have to get along with humanity in, in exactly this integrated way. It's not just that, you know? There's other ways it's gonna manifest. And Gillen gets to outline some of those throughout the course of this issue. And it's, it's one of those things, too, where you think about, like, this slippery slope that these powers and this level that this character is on can sort of build towards, where it's like, on the surface, if you just ask me, like, hey, if you had psychic powers and you could trigger it so all the world leaders could not, um, could not uh, initiate nuclear war, would you do it? It's kind of like a no-brainer. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I'd do that. You know, I'd do that. But then you just keep asking the question. Eh, what about this? What about this situation? Uh, would you do it then? Right? And it's just right and on and on and on we go. And that's, of course, where Professor X is at. Uh, which, all of which, again, beautiful, beautiful character study. I love the honesty of it. I mean, there's there's really some interesting commentary, too, on a Professor X perspective. That Gillen, in his newsletter, he talks about having written this before the first issue of Immortal X-Men ever, ever dropped. Right? And he was like, I've, I've had this one ready to go. And Professor X basically says, why did I form the X-Men? Was it actually to, you know, in the, in the chase of this dream that Gillen pokes fun at immediately? It's like they call it a dream. They don't call it a strategy. They don't call it a plan. It's, a, it's an unachievable goal. Um, and he's like, why did I actually put the X-Men together? Like as part of this build towards Krakoa. And so much of it is like the way he's honestly telling us is basically he's like, I did it to protect us from other mutants. You know, I did it to protect against other mutants because mutants are powerful. And guess what? Power leads to danger. You know, he's like, my sons could have ended the world. Moira's son was a serial killer. You know, there's all these examples, of course. Um, just like 
stripping away the mask. And of course, that's the, the ultimate irony. At the end of this is Professor X removing the mask, and then we get the big reveal. But it just strips away the mask, and it is such a more interesting and, in many ways, um, engaging character than we get to see Professor X be so often. So often. So that was awesome. That was awesome. Okay, now let's do it. We're officially at my usual starting time. I think we're about officially at the, um, the time I said I would start today. So if you're coming in, thanks for joining live. I will remind us all once again that this episode will have spoilers. There are major reveals in Immortal X-Men number 10 today. If you haven't read it, go do that and then come back, please. I would love that. Um, let's talk about it, okay? The last page of this comic rules. I mean, the last page of this comic is out of this world good. I did not see it coming in the context of this issue. Although, although, I obviously must say, when I reviewed the Mike Carey X-Men Legacy circa April 2020, that's how I spent my pandemic, Dave Stinney did have some words about the relationship between Professor X and Mr. Sinister. Go on back, people to my X-Men Legacy review. First off, great review. Um, but I talked about this because in the Mike Carey X-Men Legacy, it's one of my favorite things to go back to. Like in all of X-Men continuity, it's such a big flipping story and then nobody played with it. Nobody played with it. And the story was, if you're not familiar with X-Men Legacy, you haven't read it. First off, like one of the most underrated X-Men runs of the past, whatever, 20 years. Um, the story is that Mr. Sinister implanted his DNA into the Xavier family line. And that resulted in little child, Charlie. So the ways that we think about Cyclops' life, Scott Summers' life, having been manipulated by Mr. Sinister, you know, running back to the, the Claremont days where, you know, Sinister was there in the orphanage with Scott and this kind of idea that he's been following him around all his life and manipulating him and, you know, obsessed with his DNA and all these things. Mr. Sinister actually did that more elaborately with Professor X. He, like, he actually built in, like, a backup consciousness, basically, into Professor X to the point that there's a very famous panel there that I love referencing of Professor X with the big red diamond on his forehead, you know, when Mr. Sinister attempts a takeover in that story arc. It's one of those things that it's, like, it happens, it's huge, it's like, oh, wow, like, is, is Mr. Sinister kind of always, you know, around with Professor X? It doesn't really get fully resolved, <laughs> Like it doesn't, it doesn't get eradicated. Nobody does away with it. And then just nobody's mentioned it again. Maybe not nobody. Maybe it's come up. I don't know, but not like this, <laughs> not like this, but that's what I said in that X-Men Legacy review was like, okay, I don't know that I buy that it was sinister all along. I mean, this was April, 2020, right? So we're closer to house of X and powers of 10. And at that point in time, the prevailing theory was like, oh, Charlie never takes his helmet off. He must be Cassandra Nova, he must be Mr. Sinister in secret because he's acting weird. He's acting sinister, right? He's acting evil. Got to be somebody else, okay? And I didn't fully buy into that. And then we saw him take his helmet off, you know, in like House of X number four and he, you know, he got assassinated in, uh, in X-Force number one like right away. And we've seen it enough times now where it's like, okay, no, it's like that's Charles. Like that's Charles Xavier. Like this is a new modern version. We have to adjust to this. Um, but what I said in the X-Men Legacy review, I was like, Listen, I don't believe it's been sinister all along, fully in control, but never doubt that the master of manipulation is in play with a takeover. He literally imprinted himself on Charlie's psychic, whatever you want to call it, 
okay? That's there in X-Men canon, right there in the continuity in a pretty well-known story. And now it's back. <laughs> and now it's back. The final page reveal of Mortal X-Men number 10 is Charles just saying, I'm me. I'm the best me I can be. I'm super proud of me. <laughs> Takes off his helmet, and he's got a big red diamond there. And this is after the Mr. Sinister that we've seen, the one who just killed everybody in the Quiet Council, after he attempts to escape, but is actually thrown into the pit. He's still sinister, of course, finds a way, right? He finds a way to survive. That's what he does, apparently, within the consciousness of Professor X. It's a huge flip and reveal. I love it so much. I was not expecting this, right, of all the sinisters that are out in the world now, because there's been some developments here, right? We've talked about, you know, there's a there are a variety of core or prime sinisters now that we have to worry about, a whole suit of cards worth. Um, we saw one revealed in the last issue of X-Men Red that Orbis Stellaris is actually a Mr. Sinister who's been living in a gold ball in space <laughs> for a real long time. Everybody thinks Mother Righteous from Legion of X is going to be one, although that has not actually been confirmed. I suspect Legion of X number 10 might do that. So the question here is, has Charles been a Sinister this whole time? And by this whole time, what are we even defining? Right? His whole life? From Krakoa onward? From going to Bar Sinister and requesting Sinister's aid onward? Or is this a recent development? Is this a recent development? Is this post the most recent resurrection, which was a little funky? You know, because that's, that's where this issue starts. And we can throw it to the images here. This issue starts with the resurrection of the Quiet Council. They were all, you know, not all, but nearly all murdered at the end of the last Immortal X-Men by Mr. Sinister and his giant guns. And what Immortal X-Men number 10 points out, something that I was not really considering the ramifications of in full, but it's like, they don't know that resurrection will work without Hope. You know, Hope Summers, as part of the Council now, has been killed. Um, so they don't know that it's definitely going to work and that's played up a little bit, but then kind of immediately undone because <laughs> sync steps in and is like, I think I can sync hopes powers and does it seemingly successfully. The quiet council are resurrected, including hope or a version of hope. Um, I, I felt like it was played up to a, to a degree that I was like, well, maybe we actually should roll with the inability to resurrect here, especially knowing we're going into the Sins of Sinister, that's not what the comic does, but it does raise the question, like, Sink is not usually playing the hope role. It's the first time doing it. So did he just knock it out of the park and nail it on the first try? Or because Sink was doing it, was there some latent opportunity for Sinister to hijack the process? I don't know. Right? I do not know. Obviously, that'll be revealed. Um, but I'm I'm definitely leaning that this is a more recent development. But the thing that sort of undermines that theory, the idea that like, oh, okay, Sinister probably just triggered this backup in Professor X, is, um, I mean, we've known that Sinister was like in on the schemes, basically from Jump. I mean, as far back as the first Sinister Secrets page in Powers of X, you know, one of the one of the teases there is he's been in on the game for almost as long as the game's been played. And we've kind of all just taken it, you know, for granted and kind of accepted that, like, yeah, Sinister knows what's up and he's in on the secret. But, but it, you know, this is a question I've asked a few times, but it's like, well, how? Specifically, how? <laughs> Does he know all these things? And certainly one of the easiest answers there could be 
uh, because he's got a backup consciousness inside Professor Charles Xavier, who is one of three people, you know, Magneto, Moira, and himself, in on all the plans and all the scheming. And then that raises the really interesting question, how flippin' long has Professor X had a sinister backup? You know, is it from that Mike Carey X-Men legacy? Like, so many questions. So many questions about the specific timing of it. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And that's what's so exciting about this, right? That's the best kind of flippin' reveal here is it's surprising and it raises questions and it makes me want to theorize and dig into X-Men comics. And I have missed that a little bit. I have missed that a little bit. I talked a little bit earlier today about, you know, 2019 was this moment with House of X and Powers of 10 that was viewed, rightfully so, as the X-Men comics franchise has been saved, right? Jonathan Hickman, Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva, they saved X-Men. And, you know, again, deserved. It's true in many senses, you know? Put the franchise on a new path, really sort of reimagined what an event or sort of retcon can do for ongoing superhero comics. You know, a lot of lessons that are still to be learned and I think we'll still continue to see in the comic space. Um, but, but, you know, what's kind of amusing is the franchise pretty quickly fell into a coma after that. And I'm talking here about the Reign of X. Did everything stink and it was awful again? No, of course not. There were great books in there. Hellions and Sword, chief among them. Um, but the Reign of X got super stagnant. You know, it did. Fell into a bit of a coma. And then we have now the irony of the Hoxpox savior needing to be saved. And Al Ewing and Kieran Gillen over the last decade, saving it. Or not decade, the last year, saving it. Like, we're back. <laughs> we're good. We're good here. You know? Like, all the folks running around. And obviously, like, listen. Like, if you follow me. And, and you know my preferences and the things that I like to talk about, I like Jonathan Hickman comics. Heck of a lot. Okay? Um, but all the folks running around, you know, with spreading these, these just absolutely dumb conspiracies that Hickman was pushed out of the franchise and that, you know, X-Men comics have been trash ever since, they're not reading X-Men Red and Mortal X-Men. Or they just have very bad taste. Because <laughs> these comics rule. The Destiny of X is arguably as good or better than any preceding era, dawn or rain. Definitely better than rain, you know? It's here. We're good. This is nice. This was this was the whole, you know, this was the real plan, you know? Like, this was the real idea was create a framework through which talented comics creators can make great X-Men comics. And it's happening. This was the real plan, you know? It wasn't for one person to Grant Morrison in and do their new X-Men. That wasn't the plan. That wasn't ever the purpose. The purpose was to create a structure and, and a framework where a whole team could thrive. And that's what we're seeing again. Super exciting. Super exciting stuff. Okay, I'm going to get a drink of water. I'm going to check some of these comments and questions. Keep them coming here in the chat. I definitely want to hear what you think. Banksy asks, why was Hope Sinister's main target? I think there's two interpretations to this. One is just that her power set would make it impossible to kill the rest of the Quiet Council. Like, as long as she was around, she could just quick channel Storm and roast him. Or something like that. The other interpretation is 
he knew that without her, resurrection was uncertain. And that Sinister actually didn't want the Quiet Council to get resurrected. Which, I kind of prefer the first interpretation, because the second, again, it gets resolved, like, it gets resolved fast. And I feel like you really undersell the drama of it. You know, if Sync can just step in and... I mean, not to downplay Sync's contributions, like, good job, Everett. <laughs> but, you know, made it look easy. Made it look easy. Uh, Banksy follows up by saying, did it, him being put in the pit trigger it somehow? That's an interesting theory. Like, that that theory I kind of like. This idea that somehow Sinister concocted, like, if I go into the pit, then trigger the failsafe backup in Professor X. I think that could work. Okay. Let's see. Um, I do also, I want to clarify, because I've, I, I can see this coming. I don't know if people are having this question or not, but, like, I can see the conversation starting around people being like, oh, like, Professor X's actions, and right down to, like, his monologue in this issue, that's not actually Professor X. That's Mr. Sinister controlling Professor X, right? This sort of absolving Charlie of these thoughts and what I see as this sort of radical, transparent honesty I don't buy that. I don't buy that, right? I think the monologue that we get written here for Charles Xavier by Kieran Gillen, those are the thoughts and words of Charles Xavier. Like, that is definitely how I read that. That is not the sinister-controlled, sinister-influenced Charlie, you know? Um, that's my interpretation of those things. And, and I would extend that even to House and Powers. Like, I don't... <sighs> I don't really buy this idea that, like, the Krakoa, the establishing of Krakoa, that you need a dark, looming presence pushing Professor X to to ever do that. I think it actually, I think that actually ruins, frankly, a lot of the House of X and Powers of Ten setup. If you try to scapegoat someone else into what are otherwise very well-explained and very believable motivations and actions by a trio of individuals. Professor X, Magneto, and Moira. But that's just a preference thing as opposed to like, oh, I think that's what happened here. Um, okay. Bill asks, could Destiny and Mystique... Oh, scroll past the question. Uh, I lost it, but basically uh, the question was, oh, could Destiny and Mystique uh, in Immortal X-Men and Storm of the Brotherhood mean, or they're on the covers, could it mean that they have seen through this time to stop it from happening? So there are some interesting developments here. Destiny feels, after Sinister has been put in the pit, which all happens without any, all the conversation that's happening while Sinister is being thrown into the pit artistically is just Professor X monologuing about other stuff, right? There's no like actual conversation happening between characters basically about Sinister going in the pit. Um, after that happens, Destiny feels, you know, what seemingly the sins of Sinister coming, right? Grabs Mystique and is like, we need to get the hell out of here. Like immediately, right? So Destiny definitely has a clue what's going on, um, probably with Sinister having taken over Professor X's power. And again, what this issue kind of sets up is basically, basically it's Professor X, you know, continually saying like, okay, you might think I'm bad, but imagine if someone really bad had these powers. Imagine if an actual bad man <laughs> had these powers. It's all these sort of moral relativism things. But then, of course, the the joke at the end, in many ways, is okay, now someone who actually does, <laughs> is actually truly terrible, has these powers. And we've just been told over and over that if someone truly terrible had these powers, that they could destroy the world. 
you know, that they could kill everyone. And we know the sins of Sinister is coming. So that's what Destiny is sensing here. Um, do I think they'll have, like, stopped any of this from happening? No, because, I mean, that's the that's the sins of Sinister, you know, progression here is, like, these issues are going to show Sinister winning. Um, might Destiny Mystique play a role in ultimately undoing everything? I think that that I buy. That feels very believable, and... I hope that's true, because that would be very much in tune with what Gillen has set up here. I mean, this is a story of Destiny versus Sinister, you know? Um, so it would make sense that Destiny and Mystique could be the primary or or at least supporting antagonist or protagonist to Sinister. Uh, so I like the idea. I like the idea. Jay asks, did Destiny know this was going to happen from the beginning? Because she made sure her and Mystique got the hell out of there. Uh, I, I don't think she knew everything. That was going to happen, you know, in the Destiny issue, we see Destiny has visions of possible futures, but it's clouded and it's muddied by Sinister and by his use of Moira's. Um, but yeah, once once we get to that moment of her saying, let's get the hell out of here, I, she's seeing something's coming for sure. Um, all right, what else do we get? Dave, are you wearing the hat to hide a diamond on your head? Kenji asked. You must have been you must have been back at the beginning of the recording. Well, yeah, I bet you've seen an answer. I bet you've seen an answer by then. Um, <laughs> my son crafted the diamond for me, for those of you who had seen it, uh, which is why there's a design on it. I, I requested a pure red diamond, but my son was like, no, I'm doing a cool design. And you know what? That was fine. That was fine by me. Uh, okay, keep questions, keep thoughts coming. We can keep talking about this. I mean, yeah, just an amazing reveal, an amazing issue. Immortal X-Men number 10 is one of my favorite X-Men comics in a good long while. Uh, super rewarding. I really like the idea that this is at least going to be referential to that X-Men legacy might carry continuity. Um, I don't need, I really don't need X-Men comics to be playing continuity baseball. I think that can be, it can be very detrimental to comics, you know, and this is not an arc that, that desperately needs that. Uh, but I do think they've gone a little too far in the other direction, you know, especially with the potential of Moira, where it's like, it would be kind of cool <laughs> to see some of the history of X-Men as applied through this new filter we have, you know, because we have a new filter. We have a totally new way of looking at the events of the X-Men now. Uh, so I, I hope it's intentionally referential. Uh, it could just be a new, it, like, like it could easily just be Sinister was able to implant his consciousness on Professor X. He did this after the fact and have no reference to the fact that this had happened previously. I mean, you could do that and get away with it. Um, I just don't really see that happening. You know, uh, I don't really see that approach happening, which is, I think, a lot more fun. Uh, you know, my, my, well, we don't need to talk about that. I was going to talk about Moira and X-Men Legends, but listen, done deal. It's a done deal. We don't need to worry about it. Um, Wanda says, Dave, why didn't Kieran make a big deal out of Emma's first resurrection? It seems she's going to be the hero of a moral X-Men, but now her backup has been messed with Sinister's bull ass. Uh, hmm. Is this Emma's first resurrection? Is that right? Did she not? I don't, I, I have a hard time keeping tabs. At this point, all I remember is Storm has made a big deal of not being resurrected. Um... That's about it. <laughs> that's about it. So definitely y'all can confirm whether or not that's true. I I do wonder, because if the theory is that Sinister 
implanted some quiet council takeovers in this resurrection somehow. And that's how Charlie has the diamond. Then there's no reason to think that the others remain unscathed, right? Including Hope, including Emma, including anyone else who died in that. I like the idea here that it uniquely works on Charlie because of the previous connection and the fact that Sinister already had a backup consciousness implanted in Charles Xavier. I like the idea that the remainder of them remain unscathed. Um, I'm seeing a lot of confirmation here in the comments that this is, in fact, Emma's first resurrection, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, we seem to... We definitely are going to have Emma being a player in Immortal X-Men, at least from the solicits and the teasers. So I like the idea here that she has, she will remain as the front line's defense against whatever this new Sinister era is instead of having been conquered by Sinister. But I could see it going the other way, right? That she is, in fact, a puppet of Sinister because of the way he's manipulating the Quiet Council now and then her overcoming that over the course of the series. You know, her overcoming that over the course of the series. Um, ironically here, I'm seeing from James, pretty sure Beast has not been resurrected. Uh, what about when the little tiny Russians took out his eye? I guess they just took out his eye and he's been wearing the eye patch ever since, right? Maybe they didn't act because the little tiny Russian got inside him. Who among us, right? <laughs> Who among us hasn't had that problem? Uh, and then I guess he, he, the surgery worked. So world's worst beast maybe hasn't been resurrected. I saw some theories and some talk too about, you know, we saw in an earlier issue that Mr. Sinister does have a dark or the dark beast or a dark beast, who knows, um, that if he's manipulating things on the scale, maybe that means that, you know, he has multiple dark beasts and that's what this beast is this whole time. I got to say at this point, yeah, I was pretty anti that approach, you know, for a long time. Um, I, you know, gave beast too many outs, you know, I, th I thought maybe it was a bit of a cop out. Honestly, I'm at the point now where it's like, that'd be fine. <laughs> like, if we want to reveal that good saintly Hank has been trapped in a sinister dungeon somewhere this whole time, you know, has been mad-eye moodying it for years or whatever, and that it's been Dark Beast all along and it's a part of sinister schemes, I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine with that. Let it happen. Give me, give me fun, Hank, back after the fall of Axe. I have no complaints there at this point. Like, <laughs> this beast is so far gone, and this story is so damn long. Like, move it on. Move it along. Take the, take the cheap, the cheap get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, if you will, for Beast. Um, okay, Beast lost an eye, not his life. Yeah, so Beast has not been resurrected either. I'm sure there are some others that are probably decent-sized players. Um, I don't, like Colossus? I don't know. Like what, happened, like, what would happen if Colossus got resurrected? Do they still have their, their Russian uh, Manchurian candidate? You know, what would happen there, right? I bet we won't see. <laughs> I bet we won't find out. Uh, technically, there were some other X-Men comics today and some other comics that were a part of this line. I don't have a lot to say about them. There was Dark Web X-Men number three. Um, this was a nice little miniseries. And keep your questions coming about Immortal X-Men and Sin Sinister and all that, and I'll, I'll address what I can. Um, you know, Jerry Duggan's done a really nice job with the X-Men tie-ins. Of, of Marvel Universe events. You know, and it kind of makes sense, right? This is the superhero team book. Uh, so it, it makes sense that they would function pretty well in crossovers across the Marvel Universe. I think uh, in Dark Reign, there were some nice little X-Men crossovers that were kind of Emma Frost concentrated. And here we get a uh, good Jean Grey and Maddie Pryor concentrated, you know, 
spinoff kind of thing of the X-Men series. You got Phil Noto and Roderick's art. Um, it's nicely done. It's nicely executed. I'm a little worried that, like, saving Madeline prior arcs are becoming Marvel's version of DC restoring the multiverse. You know, we don't need to do this every six months. Uh, that said, this particular story was affecting, I thought. Um, effective and affecting. You know, we had Maddie basically say, I missed the, you know, the baby years of little Nathan Summers, of baby Cable, this baby she gave birth to, and wanting those memories, wanting to live that experience again, and Gene giving it to her as a parent. I was feeling that. I was feeling that. That worked for me. Um, I, again, I, I think, like, let this happen and let Maddie Pryor move on in the Krakoa era and ruling Limbo and just being an ally now right? For the X-Men. That would be awesome. I think that can work, right? The thing I don't want to see, I don't want to see what Scarlet Witch was condemned to for the last 30 years, you know, of like, oh, gone evil again. Oh, she's going crazy again. Don't want to see that with Madeline Pryor. You know, we've done it. We've done it. I think we should be good. I think we should be good. Um, But they've done a nice job with this. It's not super, like, reliant or tied into Dark Web, frankly. Like, you really don't need to have read much or maybe any of the rest of Dark Web, which it's not worth reading. So, like, that's good. <laughs> Dark Web is is a throwaway crossover at best. Um, the fact that Duggan is salvaging nice little stories out of that uh, is cool. It's good. Um, yeah. Solid. If you're a big fan of Jean Grey, Madeline Pryor, and 1989 Inferno, it's a must read. Uh, if you're not... You know, basically the the takeaway here is I think Malin Pryor is going to be an ally for Krakoa moving forward, which means they once again have some control slash presence in Limbo, which is what they had with Magic before she gave it up. But yeah, solidly done. We also technically have Deadpool number three today. Deadpool is like, it's part of the X office now, um, mildly crossed over. With the X line, it's got Harrower, Harrower. She is the grandchild of uh, horror culture. <laughs> Remember them? The old folks from Hickman's X-Men number three. Uh, it's not super X-related, but if you like Deadpool, I don't know. It's it's kind of like a goofy rom-com thing going on with Deadpool. I'm not like super hooked on it one way or the other, but I'm kind of curious to pick it up when it's all done. But yeah, I mean, it's not, you don't have to be reading it if you're, if you're reading X-Men comics at least at this point in time. Okay. I'm seeing the theory here from James. Everyone who has been resurrected will become a sinister. <sighs> That's interesting. There's there's some interesting commentary here from Beast about, you know, they needed Sinister originally because he had DNA of everyone. And they needed that as part of the resurrection process. And Beast was saying how, like, we're at the point now where so many people have been resurrected that we've accumulated their DNA that way. And then we actually won't need Sinister after a certain point, And I can't wait. You know, which is like, oh, yeah, at a certain point, like, Sinister's value will expire. You know, like, they'll just have it. Um, Something I'm sure that character is keenly aware of. Is the resurrection process compromised? I mean, they made a really big point of Storm not being resurrected. And we know Storm and the Brotherhood is one of three books, you know, that's going to continue. So could that be a reveal here? That Sinister was sort of hijacking it and hacking the resurrection process? I mean, that would make a ton of flippin' sense. 
that would make a ton of flipping sense. That is Sinister's one major contribution, one area of control. And again, the books are going to be Immoral X-Men, which would, you know, if it's Emma and the gang taken over by Sinisters, that would work. If you got Storm and the Brotherhood as the last bastion of mutant defense, you know, the non-resurrected mutants, that would make a lot of sense. And then you've got Nightcrawlers, which is going to be Chimeras, which are Sinister creations anyway. I think that works. I think that works. I like this theory. And I, I definitely hadn't been... And I think it's I think what works about it even better, frankly, is I don't like the idea that like, oh well all the all the any outs, you know, where it's like, oh, all these actions and the the very nature of Krakoa and what mutants are deciding is is because they were you know influenced by this evil mastermind. I feel like that gives too much credit <laughs> and credence to folks who didn't like seeing mutants get their own, you know, nation state and, and a chance to thrive. You know, I, I feel like that gives them a little too much credit to be like, oh, see, it was sinister. It was evil the whole time. Um, I, I feel like you don't want to accidentally make that point. But if you wait, where it's like, no, they were all themselves, but there were these latent triggers that Sinister had in there, which now lets us tell this story. Maybe you can get away with that. Maybe you can do it. Um, yeah, Demarius points out here in the comments, it's hard to believe Sinister hasn't tampered with mutant DNA since the beginning of Krakoa. It is. It definitely is. You know? I mean, that's what this character does. They were they were playing it cool. <laughs> kinda. Not really. But you know, kinda kind of undermining the threat. Or understating the threat. Which we knew was there. Powers of X tells us. Moira tells us. You cannot trust Sinister. He is the devil. Hickman was not subtle. <laughs> in those comics, right? We knew this was coming, but then you wait long enough and people just kind of start forgetting the threat, you know? And that's the that's the type of thing where I do appreciate the long-form storytelling and the patience, you know? There are ways that certainly that can pay off in these types of stories, in superhero universes. Um, and we're seeing it here with The Sins of Sinister. So it's, yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been incredibly excited for this event. I'm even more excited now. I mean, every new reveal over the last several weeks between Immortal and X-Men Red has been even cooler than the last. Um, it's going to rule. It's going to be awesome. And then we're off to the races, building towards Fall of X. And I'm most curious to see what the heck things look like after that. Because I feel like I've got a general pulse on what that's going to be. But I'm definitely most curious to see where do we go after that. I don't know. I don't know at this point in time. I have guesses, as per usual. Uh, we had a question here. What was your favorite part today? It says, Havoc and Cyclops running out of the tower with puppies. It was a 10 out of 10 moment in comic book history. That was cute. That was definitely cute. Um, my favorite moment. I mean, the easy one would be the reveal. The Red Diamond Charlie. <sighs> hmm. It's an interesting question. I think I have to go that. It's it's hard to pick anything else. I mean, again, just Immortal X Men as a whole, that whole issue and just the the conversation that Charles is having having. Um, it does make me wonder, actually, going back to what Reed Richards whispered to Professor X at the Hellfire Gala, like like what that could be. Now, kind of having seen the curtain laid bare on Professor X, you know, like what like what secret did Reed uncover? Because Charlie didn't tell us all the secrets. You know, he dropped one. 
and then accidentally dropped second through dramatic irony, you know, but just, just reveals in this monologue about, you know, the nuclear weapons. It's an interesting question. What the heck did Reed say? What's to come there? I bet that'll come up in Fall of X. I'd be very surprised if that didn't come back up in Fall of X. Okay. Get your questions in. Get your thoughts. Take another drink of water. And then, I don't know. What do we talk about from here? I think so. Okay. Here's a, here's a question that'll get me rolling. JD asks, Can't one like what Gillen and Ewing are doing and still hold that behind the scenes, Hickman was not allowed to move his story forward at his own pace. So I think in some ways, both things are true. Um, like, like there's aspects of truth in each, right? Um, obviously, yes, you can like what Gillen and Ewing are doing and, and should, frankly. Uh, Hickman was not allowed to move his story forward at his own pace. Okay, I think it's the, it's the language choice that I keep seeing, which is allow that bothers me more than anything (laughs) is this idea that like that Hickman is a player on the bench and that the coach said, you know, you don't have the green light, right? You can't shoot threes. You're not allowed. You know, I don't think that's how this works. (laughs) Like (laughs) I don't think in the power dynamic of the X office and at Marvel comics, that like, like, who is that person? I mean, you have the editors and then up to the editor in chief, but like none of them have the recognition or the contract or the money-making potential of a Jonathan Hickman, which doesn't mean editors or editors in chief can't make bad decisions. You know, it's not like Jim Shooter was necessarily a hotter commodity than Chris Claremont, but certainly still had a major influence you know, and rules that Claremont would not agree with and approaches to story that Claremont would not agree with, you know? So it's it's not inconceivable, but it is just like the player in that space with the most power and the most juice and probably making the most money is Hickman. Um, and, you know, the other thing is like everyone's version of events has been we... Oh, it, well, just to complete the analogy... Like, also, Hickman's not a player on the bench in this scenario. As I've said a billion times, like, he's the GM. He's a GM who plays, (laughs) you know? He put the team together. He constructed the roster, you know, and then built the team and coached the team and all that. So it wasn't the idea then of the team, like, turning on him. It's like, no, like, he kind of constructed that franchise along with editorial, um, as I'm seeing here in the chat, I'll make Eagle points out, Hickman said it was a team vote. That's every version of events has been a vote, essentially. And do you want to move fast or do you want to, you know, be a little more complacent, essentially? And the general interpretation has been the team voted like, no, we want to hang out in this era longer. And then now you can interpret from here because we don't really have great insight into this, but you can interpret, okay, and then did Hickman angrily take his toys and go home? <laughs> like every every version of events that has been told was, he was like, oh, okay. Like, and then moves on to the next thing. And it was an X-Men, you know? Um, I'm sitting here from, from Worley, and it's how it works. Jordan White and C.B. Cebulski are more influential than John Hickman. I don't buy that actually like like in the actual process 
of publishing Marvel Comics. I mean, I guess I get what you mean, you know? Like, they, they keep the, the machines moving and all that, but, like, not in the world of comics, you know? Anyway. Um, yeah, it's just the allowed piece of it, I think. I think there's a version, you know, of the world where it's, like, Hickman could have kind of done his own thing and moved forward at his own pace and done a Grant Morrison's version of New X-Men. And I think that story would have been really interesting. I mean, I totally agree. Like, I would have thought that was interesting to read on. Or I would have loved to have read that run. Uh, but that was never the setup or the intent. You know? This is the this is the coach and player. <laughs> Such a bad analogy. <laughs> Gets so muddled. No, this is like, you always see this, where the coach is like, I want more power, actually. Or I want a new experience. I want to also be the GM. Like, that's that's how Hickman set up this ex-office. You know, was like, I want to pick the players and and have that experience, you know, a semi-editorial experience as I'm also shaping story and that sort of thing. Um, and you can't have it both ways. If you're going to set up that team, you'll also have to work with them and acknowledge what it is that they want. Um, and, and they're not the ones who are going to turn and suddenly kick you out, you know, like this player. Anyway, uh, Berserk says that shouldn't have been a vote, though. I mean, I think this is where it gets into <sighs> a lot of that is situational and context driven. You know, um, a lot of that is situational, you know, has a lot to do with the pandemic and publishing schedules getting super screwed up, which is, you know, that's an unavoidable defense. Um, but, you know, I think you can also point to like, let's not pretend here that that Jonathan Hickman, comics writer, was like, I want to do nothing but write X-Men comics. This individual got a massive offer from Substack, got a boatload of money to an like the best creator-owned deal I've ever seen in comics and took that and wanted to do it with, with Three Moons and Three Worlds going on right now with Mike Huddleston and Mike Delamundo. And it's an interesting project. It's not like they didn't have another job offer <laughs> as well, you know? Um, so I think there is an argument to be made that like, the desire to move faster and and move to the next era, which I fully wanted at the time, I did, um, because the reign of X was so stagnant at the end, was so flipping stagnant that it was like the choice was move fast or uh, sit in this, you know, stagnant period. How is that of choice, right? It didn't feel that way at the time. But now that we're here, now that we're here, maybe that was the wrong choice. Maybe he was outvoted, and rightfully so, you know, because the Gillen and Ewing era has been awesome. So anyway, this is all just like theorizing about how people get along. I mean, I think the reality of it is probably their colleagues, and they they talked about an issue, and they seem super amicable and, and frankly, like very much like friends in, in a professional context as much as you can be. Um, you know, and it kind of just worked out where one of them like had another job offer. <laughs> like, and they're like, okay, like I don't have time to do that anymore happens. It happens. But no, I, yeah, it's this idea that like Marvel editorial was like, we are not allowing you, Jonathan Hickman, to ruin our X-Men comics. Like, that's absurd to me. That's absurd. Okay. Like, like no one would help you sell more X-Men comics. Absolutely. Like, like who, who would help sell more X-Men comics than Hickman's name right now? I mean, truly. Name one. Alan Moore's X-Men. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that would turn up some interest. I'll give you that one 
Frank Miller's X-Men. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Nobody let Frank onto Krakoa, please. Nobody tell Frank about Krakoa. Nobody send him an invitation. Don't hand him uh, a Hellfire Gala invite. Just let Frank do what he's doing. Okay. <laughs> we don't need that. Okay. Any final questions? Thoughts on Eve Ewing taking over Black Panther? I hadn't seen that. Bill, I had not seen that. Uh, it definitely feels like it's time. It seems like folks have really cooled fast on the John Ridley era of Black Panther. I'm way behind. I read like the first handful of issues. Wasn't super taken by it. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, like let's do it. I'll I'll check that out for sure. <laughs> Banksy House is that Al Ewing's wife? No, I believe they're entirely unrelated. Um, Eve Ewing, Chicago native. I know that much. Uh, JD asks, if I don't want to purchase physical copies, is it better to do Marvel Unlimited or Comixology? Good timing. Good timing, JD. Um, <laughs> I would say Marvel Unlimited. Uh, Comixology, actually, today, uh, it was revealed that they are going through a bunch of layoffs. They're owned by Amazon. I guess there's a ton of layoffs. Uh, definitely, you know, sucks. I mean, in so many ways. Obviously, all the people that work there and have their livelihoods upended, that's terrible. And definitely feel for them. Um, I definitely have a ton of respect for, I mean, the folks who were at Comixology for the last, you know, the prior, the, the pre-Amazon years, and just clearly flipping got and loved comics and made digital the most accessible and, but also like above board it's ever been, you know, because like comics piracy is so flipping easy. It is so easy, you know, um, and, and Comixology was like, all right, fine. Like, here's an actual way <laughs> to do this and feel like you're supporting the industry. So it sucks to see it gutted like this. I mean, it happened not that long ago with uh, with this weird, you know, kind of just, I don't know, what do you, deconstruction <laughs> of a totally functional app, making it dysfunctional. And now all these people getting laid off to the point where it's like, Comixology is going to be a shell of itself. Moving forward, it really sucks. Um, my my First thought was, well, my first thought was that sucks for everybody involved, but also my second was, I mean, comics piracy is going to explode. Like, if you make the one digital offering where you can get digital books above board, if you make it suck and you make it so it's a, even if it's just a bad experience as opposed to, like, totally removing it or whatever, you know, you literally just have to search for a comic name these days to find it and pirate it. Like, it could not be easier. <laughs> You know, and I'm not saying it to like encourage you to do that. You know, I, I fully support uh, supporting your local comic shop and comics creators because I like this stuff and I like having physical copies and I, I like seeing them continue to be created. And that doesn't happen if they're all stolen all the time. Uh, but, you know, just like comicsology going away or, or being a shell of its former self, it's going to drive so many people to like once people realize like, oh, I can just steal this stuff with a, with a search, you know, more and more people are going to figure that out. And it's over. It's game over. I mean, there is literally no competitor is the other thing for Comixology. Like, there is no competitor where you can buy that week's books digitally. You know, so that's the other challenge here. And maybe that's part of Amazon's thinking is like, why are we spending any money to make this thing good when there's literally no one else selling digital comics? If somebody wants to buy a digital comic, they literally have to come to us. You know, which is awful, but financially, I guess I could see that. Um, all right, let's see. Steven says, if you were still alive, could you imagine Douglas Adams X-Men? <laughs> I don't I don't think that would outsell Hickman X-Men, but Hitchhiker's Guide to the X-Men, would I would read that for sure. That, that's an early favorite of mine for sure. 
Uh, Warren Ellis's X-Men. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That would get some attention. That's for sure. That would draw him up some attention. Uh, but I'm confident that would not sell better. Frankly, even pre-controversy. Um, you were a pretty poor X-Men <laughs> in the mid-aughts. Uh, Nick Spencer and Donny Cates on X-Men would be great, and they'd sell gangbusters, Warlian says. We're going to agree to disagree on most counts there. Um, Nick Spencer has written X-Men, Ultimate X-Men, actually. Not that great. <laughs> it's, it's okay, I guess. Uh, Spencer's not a bigger draw than Hickman. I will, I will definitely fight you on that. Uh, Donny Cates, yeah, I mean, big draw. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm curious what, what Cates' kind of vision for the future is with Marvel. Seems like they have more or less moved on, unless they're just gearing up for an Avengers run. Um, I don't know. Doesn't seem like a creator who's like, se- seems like a creator who should step away and do creator own things for a little while. That's, that's what I think there. Uh, JD says, guess I keep buying physical copies. I mean, yeah, it's, I don't, it doesn't mean like, I mean, Marvel Unlimited is awesome. So if you just want to read Marvel comics digitally, like use Marvel Unlimited. It's great. Berserk says Disney plus you have comics. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I don't, I don't dislike the idea in terms of how many more people it could expose to comics, but I feel like that approach has totally fallen apart after DC like half tried it. You know, like the original DC universe included movies and TV and stuff. And then that got fully absorbed by HBO. And now it's just comics. I don't think we'll see those things go together. The one thing I do think that Disney should have is like when they do these bundles, you know, where it's like you get ESPN and uh, Hulu and Disney Plus, like throw Marvel Unlimited in there, you know, as part of the deal. Like it's another streaming service that expose more people to comics. I think that'd be cool. Do, 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 do. Let's see. James Tiny and X-Men. Open Mike Eagle proposes. That'd be a big deal. That'd be a big one. Um, hmm. You know, it, my, my initial reaction is like, no, that's not bigger than Hickman. But like, man, those, uh, what's it called? There's, there's something killing the children book sell. Like every week for the last, I don't know, like two years. I go into my comic shop and the number one best-selling trade is there's something killing the children. Just an absolute sales juggernaut. Uh, that would be super fascinating. I can't imagine how they would have even close to the time to do that <laughs> because Tynan's already writing a million books. Uh, but that would be super interesting. I won't pretend it isn't. Uh, okay. Any final thoughts or questions? Get him in now. Otherwise, we're going to call this puppy. <sighs> Ed Brubaker or Mike Carey? Orlean throws out there. Um, both have done it, I guess, right? So I guess if you go the route of somebody who has already done X-Men that you want to see back, I mean, Mike Carey back in X-Men would be super exciting, I think. Um, definitely not a giant sales draw. That's a pretty inside baseball, inside comics kind of creator. Uh, Brubaker, you can make, like, if you're just playing who's a bigger name in comics, Brubaker might win that one, but I I would I definitely would not. I love Ed Brubaker's stuff and as a creator. Uh, but if they announced like, yeah, gonna be right next men, it would just I'd just be like, what? That's weird. I'd be more just weirded out by it <laughs> than anything else. It would not make any sense at this point in that creator's career. You know? Uh, let's see, who would I actually want to see? Um, new creators in the X-Men office. I mean, that's the thing about what X-Men Unlimited has been doing, is they're bringing in a lot of really interesting 
creators to take on arcs um, that that I think are they're going to build out the roster that way, which has been really smart. Uh, I, you know, I don't I don't think you need necessarily to try and grab this like massive, you know, best selling kind of name or whatever. I think bringing in critically acclaimed, respected new creators who are younger and fresher is probably a smarter approach in the long run. Um, so you got some depth, you know, on the franchise and in the writer's office. You know, I think that would that'd be pretty awesome. Uh, let's see. We've seen some additional ideas pump in. Grant Morrison back. Uh, no way. <laughs> no way, no how. I'm just trying to think if that would actually be. Morrison doing, like, like just a weird angle. Like, I wouldn't want Morrison on, like, a core book. But Morrison doing, like, a weird angle that nobody has played with in the Krakoa era. Like, Morrison writing the Astral Plane stuff in Legion of X, you know, would actually rule. I think, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're just, we're just naming successful authors who already have careers and have already done their thing and do not need, or probably do not want to come write licensed mutant comics. (laughs) You know, you have to consider that as well. Um, Like, like most of the creators, like if they've done it, I can't imagine they want to come back and do it again with the exception of Chris Claremont who perpetually wishes they were writing X-Men, of course, you know, and you can kind of see why you can kind of see why. Um, I've seen multiple people mention Jeff Lemire. I was like, please, somebody give Jeff Lemire a second shot. Like, I I don't... The Jeff Lemire X-Men experience was garbage. Um, I don't know that it's Lemire's fault. Like, that whole era sucks. It, it seems like probably not, because everything else Lemire touches is pretty great, <laughs> you know? Uh, but why on earth Lemire would want to come back? Unless it was purely just out of, like, I need to prove myself again to X-Fans. They're the one... <laughs> they're the one group that I let down. I don't know why. Why on earth that individual would want to do that? George R.R. R. Martin's X-Men. That would be amazing. That would be absolutely incredible. If if George was like, <laughs> instead of instead of finishing Game of Thrones, I'm gonna take over an X-Men book. Oh man, that'd be amazing. That that's probably my favorite answer I've seen so far. The absurdity of that. Also, like Martin would write an incredible X-Men. Like Martin would write such a good X-Men. I mean, I've talked in the past, like, I love wild cards which is George R. R. Martin's superhero universe, you know, anthology. Like, Wild Cards is really great. If you haven't checked out Wild Cards before and you didn't know George R. R. Martin had a superhero anthology, check it out. It's really interesting. Um, Martin would write an amazing X-Men. Martin's like, he's like an old-school Marvel fan, too, right? I think he's in the letter pages of maybe Fantastic Four, one of the earlier Silver Age books. Um, yeah, that's the best. That's definitely the best rec so far. <laughs> that would be absurd and an absolute blast. All right, we're at the end here. Final questions, final thoughts. Let's do this. Going overtime today. All right. Um, Matthew says, A versus X, are we going to see something like that in the MCU or House of M? I mean, we already got a little flavor of House of M uh, in WandaVision, which doesn't mean you couldn't do... I mean, I I do think at some point in the MCU we're going to see a straight-up alternate reality probably sooner rather than later. I would think, given all the multiverse shenanigans going on, um, I don't, I don't expect it'll be House of M because in the X Men stuff they're going to wait on. You know, it probably won't be the first one we see. Um, A versus X, we'll see elements of it in something. I mean, that's the thing I like so much about the MCU, is the it's probably the thing I respect the most is the ability to sort of cherry pick what works from a, a handful of different comics, but not just purely recreate them. I mean, that's my big hang up with The Last of Us right now 
Like the so The Last of Us is getting absolutely incredible reviews on HBO. Um, I love those video games, both first and second. Uh, they're great, incredible narrative, right? The story's awesome. It's like in no way is it surprising that a video game with a really great story could and would translate to a, a similarly good story on TV. What is strange to me is like I already had that story. <laughs> it was awesome and I loved it. Why would I just watch it again? You know, I, so much of the praise, and I haven't watched it, so maybe I'm just way off base, but like so much of the praise seems to be, oh man, they did this scene from the video game. Oh man, they made that scene from the video game. And it's like, yeah, that was cool in the video game. I know. <laughs> I saw, I was there. I played it. It was great. Um, I don't know. Anything, like anything aside from a like a novel being recreated in another medium, because that works. We've seen plenty of examples, you know, 10 times out of 10, the book's better than the show or whatever, right? But, but we've seen it, right? Like, I would not be a giant Lord of the Rings fan. Actually, that's not true. I read the books first. But I love those movies. I love the Lord of the Rings movies. That adaptation made sense to me. Um, adaptation of comics, you know, that aren't literal ones-to-ones makes sense to me. Uh, but when you actually take something that's already a visual narrative and you just recreate it, like, if they just recreated AVX... You know, that would be so incredibly boring <laughs> unless you've never read it. You know, it's a good way to expose people to new things. But like, that'd be so flipping boring. I mean, my favorite moments of The Walking Dead TV show were the, were when they were like, oh, this wasn't in the comics. This is totally different. Like the first season actually feels like an adaptation of like, all right, yeah, let's let's feel out of this world. What could this be? Um, and then like, it's like the fifth season when they do like that whole new crew in the hospital. I don't think that was in the comics either. And I like that stuff. Uh, anyway. I don't really like re-experiencing the same story. I don't get it. I don't get it. Why did I start talking about this? Oh, recreating AVX. Yeah, they'll, they'll take elements of it at some point. You'll have an Avengers versus X-Men, you know, conflict. Um, but it won't be a one-to-one. It won't be. <laughs> and that's the thing is, like, if you make it a one-to-one, it's like that's so wrapped in the continuity of the Phoenix and Hope Summers and all that stuff, you know? So it's, it's not going to recreate it perfectly. But, yeah, they'll touch on it. You know it's coming. All right. Let's see, what else, what else, what else? I mean, I guess, nah, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Last of Us is awesome. Play it. Um, listen, if your preferred experience is like, I'd rather watch it, by all means. You know, but I guess just for me, as someone who's already done it, um, I guess it was always weird to me. I guess I already said that like books to TV and shows works, but it was always a little strange to me, the folks who read Game of Thrones, but were still simultaneously really into seeing it adapted. I always felt like that would have been really frustrating. Um, but I guess when it's well done, maybe that just goes out the window. Uh, all right. This has been fun. Thanks everybody for hanging out, for theorizing, for talking comics. Comics are good. This was a good week. Thanks everybody for listening. And as always, enjoy the comics.